Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Do you want to hear something hilarious? Something that will definitely turn your frown upside down. I got it for you. MLB just canceled regular season games. Funniest-ish ever, right? I mean, it's not funny. Not funny at all. But apparently, the commissioner thinks that it is funny. (laughs) Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I had hoped against hope that I would not have to have this particular press conference. Um, Dude, the hell are you doing? You're announcing the cancellation of regular season games, not sitting in the front row of an evening at the Improv. John Elway cannot believe how terribly that press conference started. Good afternoon. Uh... I'd like to start out this uh, press conference with uh, a thank you to John Elway. FIU Provost Ronald Berkman had a better grasp on the moment when he introed Isaiah Thomas as his new basketball coach. On behalf of President Medique, I'm glad to welcome you all and to welcome Isaiah Thompson as FIU's basketball coach. <laughs> There may even be additional content involving the aforementioned Isaiah Thompson later on today. But back to the commissioner. The commissioner of Major League Baseball getting up in front of everybody and announcing that the first two series of the regular season have been canceled, and he's essentially laughing as he's saying it. (laughs) Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I had hoped against hope that I would not have to have this particular press conference. Really? Then why are you laughing your ass off? Like, I hope that's some sort of deep deke. A deep deke. I hope somebody did some crazy freaking editing to insert that laugh in there. Because if not, that is a terrible look. One of the worst ever, even for that guy. The only look worse than canceling regular season games because of a lockout is thinking that it's hilarious. Like, I don't care if George Carlin, Richard Pryor, and Jerry Seinfeld just hit you with 10 minutes of material. You cannot laugh in that moment. You can't laugh in that situation. You just can't. Not if you want to be taken seriously and not unless you actually want people to hate you. I mean, you could see or think of the funniest thing ever in that moment. But laughing in that situation is still one of the worst looks ever. Like, this is a guy who had previously said that canceling games would be a, quote, disastrous outcome. And yet he's up there laughing right before he announces it. Calling the World Series trophy, quote, a piece of metal. Piece of metal. Can't believe how bad that was. It's like he's some sort of factory reject where he's completely incapable of ever saying or doing the right thing. And no, I'm not looking for homeboy to get all dusty up at the podium and blubber up. But maybe, maybe at least pretend or just act remotely serious. Or give us a sense that maybe you even give a crap. You know, act like you actually care. We know you don't. But better to at least pretend that you do instead of turning it and yourself into an even bigger joke than everybody already thinks you are. Fact is, while the commissioner is a joke, none of this is funny. 
In fact, it's bad. Really, really bad. Really bad for baseball. Now, you know what? Screw that. You know what it's bad for? It's bad for me. It's bad for me, and it's bad for you, because this means that Sean Casey, the mayor, will not be coming on this show for his annual opening day hit in that normal spot. We're not going to get story time with the mayor when we're supposed to get it. And that, by the way, sucks. That is the ultimate kick in the package. He's the best thing about opening day, and now you're ripping that from us, too. So if I were you, Commissioner, instead of thinking it's hilarious that you shut down the start of the season and saying there are no further negotiations planned at this time, do what you do best. Instead, start walking your ass back and forth, back and forth across that parking lot and get a deal done. Stat, do it. Do it now. Because you know what is funny? I'll tell you what's actually funny. Pretty much everything that Sean Casey says. Now, you know what's not funny? You taking a dump on the trophy that has your own name on it. You'd have a big dump in your pee. On your trophy. You'd have a big dump. On your trophy. You'd have a big dump. On your trophy with your name on it. Then again, upon further review, you know what? Now that I think about this, maybe it is funny. (laughs) It's funny that they think they can pull this crap and think that once it's finally over things will just go back to normal and that all will be forgiven and forgotten and everybody will come back because after all, baseball is and always will be our national pastime, right? Yeah, no, it's not. Wrong. And it never will be the same or go back to normal ever again because the sport is not nearly what it once was. The sport is not nearly as popular or resilient as it was back in the day. And this is why I keep coming back to this notion that I'm not even sure these guys like their own sport. Because everybody knows baseball is sliding into irrelevance. Everybody, except for the people who are calling the shots. They've got crazy stars, some of the most dynamic young talent around, but the game is run so badly that they're managing to piss it all away. Baseball is not nearly popular enough or relevant enough to be pulling this crap. If Roger Goodell was up there announcing the cancellation of even one game, people would be taking to the streets. MLB, though, could be looking at the cancellation of a month of the regular season, and everybody's like, and? Well, they're just shrugging. Everybody except the commissioner who's actually laughing. Listen, back in the day, 30 years ago, if MLB did this, people would care. Fans would be wounded and pissed, and they would take it personally. But that was 30 years ago. That was then. This is now. We live in a dramatically different world now than we did then. Here is what these greedy morons do not understand. Nobody is going to miss them. People will get used to it. And then that will grease the skids for total and complete irrelevance like that stoppage in 1994 that was emotional for a lot of people this one though this one's a joke am i right commish (laughs) good afternoon so what i'm saying is this the last thing that this sport can afford is for people to get used to it not being around 
plenty of casual fans already tune out the sport until October because they found other stuff to do. And now the more diehard fans will get the same opportunity to find other stuff to do. And then you know what? Then they don't come back. And neither will their kids because they will find better things do exist. And then they'll forget that you even exist. So what MLB loses here, they may never get back. So I hope that all-important battle over the pre-arbitration bonus pool was worth it. That'll be pretty sweet, knowing that you jam the players on the competitive balance tax when TV ratings and general interest in the game are plummeting. The folks who argued about the curtains on the Titanic salute you. Here's something else hilarious, but not funny. The game is making billions. They're making more money than ever before, but they're less relevant than ever before. And instead of dedicating the last few years to figuring out how to make the game more relevant, which would bring in even more money, the owners instead lock out the players. They do not make a good faith effort at negotiating for nearly a month and a half, and then they make the game even less relevant than it already wasn't. In other words... This sport's already limping around after taking a burning slug in the leg. Why not just put a silver bullet in its head and finish it once and for all? And I know the other side. Here it comes. I understand baseball has a lot of challenges when it comes to being relevant. And in some cases, I do understand some of the players are a part of the problem. Some of the biggest names are boring as hell. Some of the biggest names do a terrible job of selling the game. And there are some red-ass pitchers who want to take all the fun out of the game. I get that. Except this is not about that. This is not about that. The commissioner and the owners are doing a better job of promoting their greed than they are of promoting the guys who play the game. Like, imagine if Tatis Homers or Soto Lasers got as much hype as the commissioner has gotten during the week. Imagine that. Imagine if we saw as much of Vlad Guerrero Jr. smoking fastballs as we've seen of Hal Steinbrenner and khakis. If the owners and the commissioner loved the game, they would do everything they could to make it more relevant. They would not be taking games away from the fans. Like, that's the last thing you can afford when you're fighting for relevance. This scarcity will not generate interest. It breeds disinterest and contempt. Did you hear what I just said right there? The scarcity is not going to breed interest. Just contempt. Like, are the owners trying to break the union? The union thinks so. It's kind of hard to disagree, right? But maybe they aren't trying to break the union. Maybe they're just trying to break the game. And I say all of this, believe it or not, it sounds like I'm here to hate, but I'm not. I love baseball. I grew up on baseball. My kids play baseball. My son still plays baseball. I love baseball. But greed and money can destroy a sport. And no sport is bulletproof. No sport can stay on top forever if it's not managed well. You don't believe me? Ask boxing. There was a time when boxing was the biggest thing in the country. And even that was not that long ago. You know what else was huge at a time? Baseball. And baseball is doing everything it can to join boxing. And they either don't seem to know or care. The sport is careening towards irrelevance. And the guy in charge thinks it's funny as hell. 
Good afternoon, everyone. All right, so now that Manfred's had all his fun, I'm not having fun, but I want to have fun. You know what I need? I need a good laugh. I need a good laugh. I need somebody or something to pick me up. Oh, I got one. Here's my guy, Sean Casey, talking about how he learned to tip as an MLBer. When I first got to the big leagues, we were playing the White Sox. I was with the Indians, the 97 Indians, just a loaded team. Ramirez, Tomey, these guys were loaded. Well, Jeff Manta was a guy that got called up with me from AAA, but he had already been in the big leagues like five, six years up and down. On the third day in Chicago, we got getaway days. Nine o'clock bus, get your bags down, boom, you're on your way to the yard. Well, I come down, you know, full bag. I just come from Buffalo, AAA, seven days, and now I'm three days in Chicago. And I'm walking with my bag to the bus, and Jeff Manto's like, whoa, 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 Case, what are you doing? I was like, I'm bringing my bag to the bus. He's like, dude, this is the show. This is the big leagues. He goes, you don't touch your bags in the big leagues. I'm like, all right, next road trip, I'll, I'll do that. He goes, no, get back in the elevator, go back up to your room and call the bellman. I'm like, dude, there's seven minutes till the bus goes off. He's like, I don't care. So I go flying up there, Romy. I call down the bellman. I'm like, uh, Casey, room 318. The guy's like, I'll be right there. Bam, he brings my bag down. And I, and I say to Mick Manto, I say, I say to Jeff, I go, Jeff, what do, what do I tip the guy? I've never done this before. What do I tip the guy? He's like, two bucks a bag, bro. Two bucks a bag. So I had two bags. I give the guy four bucks. Boom. Boom. I'm, I'm on the bus, right? Well, here we go, bro. Fast forward six years later. I'm in the big leagues, right? I've been in the big leagues now six years. Adam Dunn, Ryan Dempster, and Austin Kearns come to my room. You know, I, you know we, we, we land in Chicago. We're back in Chicago again playing the Cubs this time. We're in my room. Guy brings up the bags. You know, we're hanging out, getting ready to go to dinner. And the guy shows up with two bags. I give the guy four bucks. <laughs> the guy, the guy uh, you know, gets ready to walk away, and Adam Dunn goes, did you just give that guy four bucks? I go, yeah, bro, it's two bucks a bag. He goes, not when you're making $8.5 million, it's not. <laughs> so from then on, bro, I tipped. I was the best tipper. Those Bellman must have been like, oh, crap, man. We got Sean Casey coming up. He gives two bucks a bag. Like, but, but, but after that day, bro, I tipped like a. If you came to my room after that moment, it was like, I was like, here's 200 bucks, bro. 200. I got six years to make up for two bucks a bag to all these Bellman. Here's 200 bucks a bag. This dude, my man, Case. Hey now, are you craving some protein after a good workout? Do not make a shake. Do not eat a bar. Reach for a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper. Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty. It's tender. It's made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire. And it goes wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach. Look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying that way. Look for it in major retail stores near you. And clones, if you don't see it, just ask for it by name because no other jerky compares Old Trapper, what is your beef? Rick Barnes is the head coach of the Vols. He joins us. Rick, always good to have you on. Appreciate it. Good to have you back. How are you? I'm good, Jim. Good to hear your voice. You too, Rick. I was just thinking, man, you and I have done this a long, long time. It's always good to have you on. So you're 10-1 in conference since mid-January. You're half game out of first. You've got three wins over top five teams. It's March. You are right in the middle of everything. So what is your message these days to your team, and what is the mood like around the program? You know, I think that the mood is good, obviously. You know, we have had a good February, and, and I, I really felt like a big turning point for our, our season was after the loss at Texas where Kennedy Chandler has just all at once uh, became, I think, much more involved on the defensive end where he understood he was going to have to give us more from that end, and, and he's it has done that. And, 
certainly like all of our guys, you know, we, we can all be better at doing what we need to do. And we talked a lot about how we had to get better with our ball screen coverage, both perimeter and post players. And we talked a lot about rebounding consistently on both ends and really taking care of the ball. When, when we played our best basketball, Jim, it's when we haven't given up, you know, just um, – you know, taking bad shots, just careless turnovers, because that's led the teams going out getting 22, 24, 26 points off turnovers. And when we're at our best, that's when we're taking care of the ball. Rick Barnes joining us. Rick, I'm glad you mentioned Kennedy Chandler. I was going to ask you about him. He had 16 points and four steals in last night's win. He's averaging 14 points and five assists for the season. Earlier this year, you said, quote, he has instincts you don't want to touch, end of quote. So what's it been like to coach and work with him? Well, he does have really good instincts, Jimmy. He, he really does. And, and like all high school players coming into college basketball, they, they realize there's so much more to the game than they originally thought because most of them, certainly a point guard in his situation, was used to having the ball in his hands all the time. And when he didn't have it, you know, he would pass it, but pretty much stay one pass away, get it back. And so Kennedy had to learn a lot in terms of one on offensive end, moving without the ball, realizing that every game is different because, you know, different teams run different coverages with their ball screen defense. And, and I actually told him he had a, he had a really a terrific game at the University of Colorado when we played there. And then we come back games after that, people played him differently. And, and he, and I told him every game has a different personality and you're going to have to learn to read it as we get into the year. You know, you can, obviously scout it but um, he's learned how to embrace the scout report he's learned how to again the biggest thing too defensively realizing there's so much more to guard in the basketball at this level because you're being screened a lot and uh, especially when you're at the point and he's still learning how to do it he's not there yet but he is learning how to be a better defender on ball screens and he's really added movement without the ball because when he's away from the ball he's He's really embraced wanting to cut to the basket, and he gets that speed on the run. It's hard to deal with. We're talking Tennessee basketball coach Rick Barnes. You know, Rick, there's one more thing about him, and I want to continue this line of questioning because I think it impacts the entire team. The thing about him is he told you when he first arrived that he wanted you to coach him hard, that he wanted that. So when he keeps saying things like, stay on me, do not let me off the hook, what's that mean to the rest of the team, and what kind of a message does that send every other guy on the team? Well, Jim, you're right. He did say that. and But you know what? I don't think he knew what he meant when he said it, actually, because I did coach him hard, and I do coach him hard. But I think after he had a conversation with T.J. Ford after the Texas game out on the court, and, you know, he didn't play particularly well at Texas, and T.J. basically said, hey, you, you said you wanted it. You need to embrace it. I, I think it was um, a, a transition that, I, again, I think all players go through. And he said it. But I don't think he understood what went into that because at the collegiate level, you know, playing the point and playing the kind of schedule that we play, you're going to be challenged every single night, and it's harder than anything that you've ever done. You know, and I think he's done a better job of, one, really getting himself in more uh, better shape physically, and then obviously the mental side is a part of it. But he did have a good conversation with TJ, and TJ said basically to him, hey, if you really want to be the guy you say you want to be, you better embrace everything that the coaching staff's given to you. 
and you better understand it's hard to get done what you want to get done. Rick Barnes joining us. So, Rick, in a span of less than three, actually two weeks, you've beat number four Kentucky, number three Auburn. Earlier this year, you beat a top five team in Arizona. When you were in the locker room after the win over Kentucky, you said, we are a national championship contender. I'm telling you, you better know that. That was the actual quote. I love that because I think a lot of coaches might shy away from something like that. Why was it important for you to express that to your team in that moment? Well, Jim, you know, I think with it, that's our goal. It's always been our goal every year. You know, you, you certainly know that you've got baby steps you got to take that turn into giant steps to get to the NCAA tournament. And, you know, when you're there, it's proven over time that if you can catch lightning in the bottle at the right time, you can be a team that plays on Monday night and a team that has a chance to win it. And this group of guys, you know, they, they have, they've worked hard. They, they, uh, they've embraced each other. And, you know, when the season starts, everybody's excited and everybody's fired up. And But then once the season hits and then reality sets in, it will maybe guys aren't going to play as many minutes as they play. You go through a period, and I think every every team in the country does it, where you go through where now you're trying to hold everybody together because, you know, they're disappointed that they're not playing. Some guys, again, thought they might play 20 minutes and they're only playing two, three and then once you can get through that period with your team, what happens is now they really start embracing, I think, each other, realizing that what we said at the beginning, we're going to need all of you at some point in time. And if you look at our team this year, every guy on our roster has helped us at some point in time win a basketball game, and, and they were ready. They they held on to the rope. And uh, then even what some guys do in practice, I mean, our scout team, what they do every day so, is so pivotal for what we need to – give the look before you know we play people and this group of guys I, I do think that they really like each other and and you go down the line there we've got a very unselfish group of guys don't let go of the rope rick barnes joining us rick the athletic did a piece today on dick vital and it says you text him every single day what does that relationship mean to you and then what does dick mean to college basketball well, you know, obviously I got to know Dick way back when I was first time really was at uh, Providence. And, you know, when Dick came in to do a game, it was a happening. I mean, I can remember we did our Midnight Madness at Providence, which is a really big deal for our recruiting. And we would do a Dick Bactow sound-alike contest, and you'd be amazed how many people signed up for that and how really there were some guys that if you didn't know better, you were listening to Dick Vitale. They were that good at that imitating his voice and his antics and but it was a happening when Dick came in, I mean everybody called you got the big game. The Dickie V's in the house, you got the big game and you know, and, and Dick as you know has done just incredible, incredible work with pediatric cancer and he has his gala every year where they are gonna get close to raising over fifty million dollars mm. since they started, I think, seventeen years ago and and, you know, what he's done for college basketball, I mean, is I don't know how I could put it in words because he People love him. You know, they just know that he, and his passion, he's not afraid to show his emotion. And obviously when he announced that he had, uh, you know, had cancer himself, uh, you know, I just texted him one day and sent a prayer to him and um, told him I'd be praying for him every day. And I just actually, what my prayer thoughts are, I, I texted it to him. I think that's great. He's an amazing person. Rick Barnes joining us. Dick Dick is just great. He's great. Really quickly, Rick, before you go, you've got a huge game. I mentioned it in number 14, Arkansas, Saturday. What is your message to your team as you get ready for that game? Well, you know, we, we really are going to have to do a better job in a lot of different areas. We, we've got to do a better job with our transition defense. We've got to 
both the games when we were there in Fayetteville, you know, both teams played so hard defensively, and it was a hard fault game that way. And and uh, but you know, both teams really dealt with some foul trouble. We dealt with big foul trouble. You know, we had our three guards basically all with four fouls a bit because we we were just trying to patch it together. So there was a lot of things taking care of the ball that I talked about. You know, certainly guarding a team right now that I think is is capable of any team in the country at going as far as they they want to go. But uh, it's going to take a lot of concentration in terms of uh, it'll be our senior night, and, you know, you always worry about the emotion being maybe too amped up a little bit. But our crowds here have been, I think, the best in the country. And and uh, so we're going to have to, again, today's our day off. The guys will spend the day taking care of their bodies, and, and a lot of them have played a lot of minutes this year. And then we'll get back at it tomorrow, and then we have an early game. And, but um, and we know it's going to be an incredible environment uh, in the building. And uh, senior night again for John Fulkerson, which he didn't really get to enjoy one last year. And I don't know if he'll start or not. I'm going to leave it up to him. You know, back when uh, Olivier Comwell went down, the natural thing would be would be to put John back in the starting lineup. But he chose not to do it. He said, Coach, I, I like the role coming off the bench. And and whether or not he starts Saturday, I'll, I'll leave it up to him. I like it. I love that matchup. Once again, number 14, Arkansas, and number 13, Tennessee. That's Saturday noon Eastern. He is the head basketball coach at Tennessee, Rick Barnes. Rick, appreciate it very much. Always good to talk to you. Good to hear your voice. It's going to be a big, big week for your program. So I'm looking forward to seeing how it all plays out. Great talking to you, Rick. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. And now a message from my friends at Discover, and it's all about rewards. If you're a loyal credit card customer, you should be rewarded for that loyalty, preferably with something that is useful, you know, like cashback match, for instance. Discover matches all the cashback that you have earned at the end of your first year. Finally, rewards that actually make sense. Discover exceptionally common sense. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Limitations do apply. How would you like to be Mike McCarthy right about now? You're prepping for next season, but nobody, as much as you'd like them to, nobody has forgotten how last season officially ended. Prescott takes the shotgun snap. He's going to run around left guard. Prescott slides inside the 25, but there's eight seconds left in counting. They scurry up to the line of scrimmage, down to two. Down to one, it's down to zeros. What will they say here? San Francisco onto the field with the coaching staff and the sideline players. They think it's over. Well, the umpire had a hard time getting that spotted because there's bodies going everywhere and he got knocked around a little bit. That's the end of the game. And that's why they could not get the snap off because they struggled so funny. to get set. The Cowboys are beside themselves, but that's the risk. I don't like that play. <laughs> that play will never not be hilarious to me. Like that right there is one of the finest moments in Cowboys history. Flat out comical. Good luck ever trying to shake that. Good luck ever trying to live that down. That would be my first question at every single press conference with McCarthy from now until the end of time. Hey, coach, remember when you called that quarterback sneak? Anyway, McCarthy met with the media yesterday at the Combine and announced that Dak Prescott had a minor surgery on his non-throwing shoulder. No, I don't, I don't, I don't see it. It's, it's, it's not a concern. We have no concern. He's doing well. Not to you, it's not. All right. 
If you say so, Mac. I mean, if my franchise quarterback, who's already had serious surgeries, is going under the knife again, even for something deemed minor, I'd be somewhat concerned. He is my franchise quarterback, and he may not be as good as we thought he was. And he's been hurt before, and now he needs to get cut on again. But if the melon smasher says it's not a thing, maybe it's not. Maybe that's because Dak Prescott is not McCarthy's biggest concern right now. Why worry about Dak's non-throwing shoulder when you should be worried about looking about and behind and over your own shoulder? Because Sean Payton is not coaching the Saints in 2022. And we know what that means. If he's not coaching the Saints in 22, that means everybody expects him to be coaching the Cowboys in 23. And, of course, the smasher was asked about that as well yesterday. I mean, it's a narrative I don't want to be a part of. I don't think anybody want to be a part of it on, on either side of the fence. You know, fairness to Sean, he's being asked the questions, but, you know, nothing good comes out of that. Actually, Mike, nothing good comes out of that for you. But for the Cowboys, it could be great. T- <laughs> this dude's so funny. You're telling me that they have a chance to bring in Sean Payton, a future Hall of Fame coach, and one of the best offensive minds in the game, and nothing good comes out of that? You know, nothing good comes out of that. Pretty much everything good could come out of that. Just not for you. Everything good could come out of that because Dallas would get to reunite with a guy who coached with them before, and then they get to pair up Dak and his wide receivers with a great offensive coach. So something really good, actually, might could come out of that. Just not for you. You'd be heading back to the barn with the guys to do whatever the hell it is y'all were doing back in the barn all day long. So I understand why you don't want to be a part of the narrative Just don't tell me that this isn't good for anybody and nobody wants that narrative. No, you don't want that narrative. And I wouldn't either if I were you. Nobody wants to be a part of a narrative where they are constantly compared to a head coach who is better than you are, who will be available. And especially if that head coach is Sean Payton. Trust me. Sean Payton is seen as the head coach in waiting. I don't think that narrative is bothering him nearly as much as you seem to think it is. In fact, I bet that it's not bothering him at all. You see, Peyton has been linked to this job before. Peyton has been linked to this job, in fact, for years. And as Mike Florio wrote in his upcoming book, Peyton was very close, this close to actually becoming the Cowboys head coach in 2019. Like, it could have been him at the sleepover instead of you. The teams had even, according to Florio, agreed to compensation, agreed on compensation for what the Saints were going to give up to let him leave. Quote, it was ready to go. It was happening. It was locked and it was loaded. End of quote. As the story goes, everything was in fact in place. And then Anthony Davis was traded and Saints GM Mickey Loomis, who was also involved in the Pelicans at that time, did not want to trade both Davis and Peyton one right after the other. So Jason Garrett gets another year with the Cowboys. McCarthy and Jones had a sleepover. They did whatever old dudes do with sleepovers together. They built pillow forts or whatever they did. And the next thing you know... The big fella, Mac, is the head coach. But there's Sean Payton. 
lurking again. And by lurking, I just mean available. He's not walking around under the cover of night. Man, it's out there in broad daylight. We know where that guy is. Everybody knows where that guy is and that he's available and that, yes, it's his job if he wants it. We know this, right? McCarthy, in effect, would have to, in my mind, not only get to the Super Bowl, but hoist it. And does anybody anywhere think that he's capable of doing that there? There's your narrative. Better win it all if you want to stay. It better end with this guy holding the Lombardi or the new narrative is going to be Mike McCarthy has already coached his last game, not only with the Cowboys, but maybe in the NFL. Is there any other owner that's going to have that guy over for a sleepover like Jarrah did? And fall in love with him. I doubt that. Sincerely. So if he loses that gig, it's not a question of whether or not he's coached his last game there, but his last game, period. Lose a game. Never mind that game. Lose any game, and Peyton's name is going to come up again. Lose a game the way they lost to the 49ers on that final play, and Peyton's name will not only come up, it's going to be screamed from the rooftops by everybody. So don't act like you can somehow nip this in the bud or actually make it go away, big fella, by vomiting up nonsense like, you know, this is just not a narrative that works for anybody. Actually, dude, it works for everybody, not named you. So if I were you, big man, I would get comfortable being uncomfortable because once you start doing you and mismanaging the clock, or not even knowing where the clock is. Call time out, Mike. And making terrible play calls like quarterback sneaks at the end of games like that, it's going to get real uncomfortable up in here. And if you think any different or that Peyton is going to come out and throw cold water on all that speculation, you are begging, big dude. And yet incredibly, old monkey butt does not seem to be sweating any of this. I think you do need to understand that I, I get to spend a lot of time with Jerry, you know, both as the owner and as the GM. So in our conversations, you know, when we talk about the partnership between a head coach and a GM, those are the conversations him and I have. So the strength of the partnership, what's in front of us, obviously we got some big decisions here to make with our roster. He addressed it. You know, we laughed about it and moved on. And that's, re- that's really... Where, where it is. I think it's, you know, it's something for externals to, you know, conversate about. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't see it as any type of topic or uh, anything that gets in the way of winning. Oh, so y'all think it's funny. Y'all got together and talked about it amongst yourselves and had a good laugh. And it's all of us externals who are, quote, conversating about it. Yeah, that works for you, big fella. Nothing good comes out of that. Yeah, actually, a lot of good comes out of that. Just not for you. As for laughing about it, I'm sure Jerry is laughing his ass off about it because he knows there's more pressure than ever on you, and if it doesn't work out, he will kick you to the curb the moment he gets a chance to sign Peyton to be his head coach. So the Sean Peyton narrative is not going to get in the way of winning because you really don't do that much winning anyway. You're going to be the one who's in the way of winning. I'm not rooting against you. I have nothing against you. I'm just saying you're clueless if you don't think that this is how this is going to go. So, 
if I were you, in fact, here's evidence that I've got nothing against you and I'm not rooting against you. I have advice for you. If I were you, big man, I would slap another coat of paint on that barn because that's exactly where you're going to be spending your time once this season is over, if not sooner. Hit that with a new can of paint, buy a bunch of monkey butt, and get ready. Because it's not a question of if, it's a matter of when. This guy thinking that he could kind of change the narrative. Nothing good comes out of that. Is really funny. Oh, okay, now that you've addressed that, I'm sure that won't come up again. I can't wait for Sean Payton to be named head coach of the Cowboys. It's going to be a fun, fun presser. Oh, monkey butt, heading back to the barn. Get the old team together. Breaking film. Checking the new trends in the game. Looking at analytics. Get his notebook ready to go. Get ready to plan another sleepover. Dude, I'm thinking this is pretty much it. Better make the most of it. So you know the best athletes know that your championship body is not built in a day. Well, the same is true when it comes to your long-term financial goals. Get financially fit with M1, the finance super app. It is commission-free, and it makes growing your money easier so you can strategize for the end game. Build a custom portfolio or choose a pre-built portfolio that speaks to your goals. Then automate your everyday money moves and use your extra time to watch the highlights. They even make it easy to stick to your investing strategy by automatically rebalancing your investments. Every time you buy into your portfolio, keeping your investments close to where you want them to be. That way, your portfolio sticks to the plan for the long game. There are no huddle-ups necessary. Visit m1finance.com sports. That's M with the number one. Sign up and see why money, Investopedia, and Yahoo Finance are proud superfans of M1. That's M, the number one, dot com slash sports. Investing does involve risk, including the risk of loss. M1 Finance, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Peter DeBoer is my guest. Peter, it's good to have you back. How are you? Great, Jim. Always great catching up with you. It's good to catch up with you, too, Peter. Thanks so much. So you beat San Jose last night 3-1. Let me start right there because from the outside anyway, it felt like that was one of your more complete games that you've had in quite some time. Did it look and feel that way to you from the bench? It did. We, we played a real solid game. Uh, I think we had, we had dropped four or five of our last six. Uh, in different ways, we hadn't played poorly, but we hadn't put it all together for 60 minutes and uh, I thought last night was the, the first time in uh, a while that we, we did it for 60 minutes and stuck with it and got rewarded for it. Right, so, Peter, what about Riley Smith? He scored to make it 2-1 to one in the second, then he scored again in the third to put it out of reach. How happy were you with his performance? And then how important was it to get that particular win? Yeah, well, two things. I mean, Riley Smith, Marcia So, and Carlson uh, have been a line uh, since the inaugural season with the Vegas Golden Knights, and they have great chemistry, and they really took the game over. They were the best line on the ice, uh, dangerous every time they touched the puck. Yeah, it was an important win for our team. I think we had been stumbling, spinning our wheels a little bit, and uh, we needed to get some momentum. We've got uh, the two busiest months of the year coming up, here schedule-wise against some really tough teams. So uh, it was a nice win. We needed the two points and hopefully propels us uh, to a big month. 
Peter DeBoer joining us. You're not going to use it as an excuse, but the team has been banged up. You've had a lot of injuries, so that's obviously going to disrupt chemistry and rhythm. So I'll say that. Let me ask you this. Over the summer, you changed the team's defensive approach. What was the thinking behind that? And then how do you like the way the players have adapted to and dealt with the new approach? Yeah, you know, we we did change our neutral zone. Uh, We wanted to... uh, uh, go to a different alignment where we maybe created some more turnovers, could be more aggressive through the neutral zone on turning pucks over, which feeds our, our rush game, which is one of the things we excel at. So, uh, you know, there's no secret to it. Tampa Bay, who, who won back-to-back cups, uses that type of neutral zone. I think as coaches, that's what we all do best. We steal from, from the teams that have success and try and incorporate some of those things into our own game. And, uh, um, you know, so far it's worked. The, guy, the guys have really bought in. And, uh, you know, despite the fact I think we're first or second in the 32-team league and man games lost to injuries, we, we found a way to keep our head above water here. Peter DeBora joining us. Peter, you mentioned a couple of guys. One guy that we have not spoken about today, but we did talk about earlier in the year, was just after the trade, and it brought in Jack Eichel. And the team, he was injured at that time, but he made his debut two weeks ago. What have you seen from him so far? Well, he's elite. You know, there, there's probably uh, five guys in the world that uh, that have the tools that he has. He's a center iceman, which is critical uh, to win a Stanley Cup. He's a big guy. He goes about 6'2", 6'3", 210, uh, skates, handles a puck, creates offense. He, he's, uh, he's one of those game-changing type athletes that every – franchise is looking for and when he when he's in the lineup and every night he's gotten a little bit better and a little more comfortable he missed pretty much a year uh with disc surgery in his neck uh but he's back he's healthy and and every night oh he looks a little bit uh, more comfortable um and uh he's going to be a big part of uh, what we're doing here both this year and going forward. Peter, I would imagine that he badly wants to be that guy. You know, the point that you just made about him being one of those rare guys, one of those elite guys. Have you had a conversation with him about, hey, listen, we brought you in here for all those reasons, but we don't need you to try to do everything by yourself? Yeah, we have, absolutely. You know, he was in Buffalo, first, uh, second overall pick, uh, really carried that franchise almost single-handedly for the first five years of his career. And He's in a spot now where he's got some depth around him and some people around him, and he doesn't have to do everything every night. And, you know, when you spend your first four or five years uh, in the league trying to do everything every night, that's not easy to do. So I think he's he's learning and adapting, and uh, hopefully this will be his first uh, journey into the playoffs. He hasn't played a playoff game yet, uh, surprisingly, for a guy that talented but uh, sometimes you get stuck in situations and you don't get those opportunities that is pretty amazing peter DeBoer joining us now i know you're not going to want to make it about you but i want to make it about you for a minute we have to acknowledge last night was your 500th career win it's a big number i would say what does that represent to you and you'll probably tell me i've had a lot of great players i've had a lot of great people around me i understand that but let me ask you this is the way you did it against a team that you would coach previously yes not because of revenge but there were guys on the other team who were a part of this whole journey so to get that win in that situation last night did that make it a little more special it did and and you're absolutely right i you know and not for the reasons people think i mean i coached in san jose for five years went to a stanley cup final got fired 
uh, it wasn't a revenge thing. It was uh, there, there's a bunch of people on that other team that we played last night that uh, that really contributed to that 500 number, uh, and I really enjoyed being around and really went to war uh, for some of the teams that I coached there. So it was a special night. It was special to do it uh, with those guys on the ice on the other side, and uh, it is a big number. I think you know 20, 28 guys in the history of the game. So. Uh, when you start putting it in that perspective, uh, you know, uh, it, it's pretty special. Peter, it's a huge number and even bigger when you consider this. Like, if we were to go back, once your playing career ended, you got your law degree, and at one point you were working at a computer software firm, and your job was to write disclaimers on the back of floppy disks. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to speculate, but that sounds like that would suck. That does not sound like a great job. Peter, what was that like? Yeah, you're exactly, that's a good way to put it. It, it sucked. Uh, and, and, you know, you would remember floppy disks, but some of your listeners might not, even, might not even know what a floppy disk is. So. I do. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's one of the, the great lessons in life for everybody uh, trying to make decisions on, on what roads uh, they're going to travel. Always follow your passion. And uh, I had a passion to stay in hockey I took a job uh, for half the money uh, to stay in hockey as opposed to, to continuing on in, in, in law, and uh, it all worked out. So, I'll say it did. Peter DeBoer joining us. It certainly did work out, and I do remember floppy disks. I can remember <laughs> using them as well. All right, so now we're on to March. We're in the final two months of the regular season. Does it feel like the pressure and the intensity goes up another notch or two at this point now that the calendar has flipped to March? It is. It's a sprint to the playoffs for playoff positioning to get into the playoffs. It's also, you know, it's not an accident. You have to be playing good hockey in the last quarter of the season heading into the playoffs. You don't just turn it on come playoff time and expect to win. So I think there's a heightened desperation for everybody out there this time of year, and we're no different. All right, so finally, Peter, obviously it's one game at a time, one shift at a time, one day at a time. To that point, you've got Boston coming in tomorrow night. They are battling for a playoff spot as well. What are the keys to that game for you and your club? Well, we've got to do what we did against San Jose the other night, uh, play for 60 minutes, uh, really try and control their best players. For me, they've got some dynamic guys over there with McAvoy on defense and Bergeron and Marchand up front. Um, and, and like you said, they're, they're desperate for wins. They're, they're in a playoff race themselves. So it's the best time of year for hockey. It's the best time uh, to coach, to play, but also to come out and watch because uh, it's, uh, it's uh, balls to the wall, so to speak. You literally ripped my line. I was going to say this is the best time of year. I was not going to say balls to the wall, but I wish I would have. Peter DeBoer is the head coach of the Vegas Golden Knights, second full year there, and they are playing really well right now. They're 30, they're 20-4, and four, and a big one tomorrow night. They're at home against Boston. Peter, great to have you back. I always appreciate the conversation. Good luck the rest of the way because it is, in fact, the best time of year. Thanks, Jim. You too. And if you were sleeping on last week's app, you were sleeping on my dude, Oak. Charles Oakley, you never, ever want to sleep on that guy. You never want to sleep on the oak tree because Charles Oakley is still, still spitting the hottest fire anywhere. My man looks like a million, sounds like a million, and he's keeping it real like nobody else. And he body bagged and toe tagged a pile of dudes last week. No tipping, pipping got it. Patrick Ewing 
got the worst of it. But you know who else got it pretty bad? Zeke got it pretty badly. In fact, let's just say it like it is. Isaiah pretty much got annihilated. If you don't believe me, listen for yourself. Mike came in the league in Magic Bird, George Gerwin, Isaiah. They was more of the front runners, and all of them was cool. But Mike came in as a rookie, having you know, almost 28, 30 points a game. So when they tried to freeze him out in the All-Star game, he played a poker hand on himself. I'm going to see y'all somewhere down the road. And, and down the road, he punished all of them, Magic and Isaiah, because when they beat Detroit, Isaiah tried to sneak back. Sneak past Bill and Bill wouldn't shake his hand. But Isaiah really mad because he took over his city. Isaiah was from Chicago. Mike got six rain and a statue right outside on the west side where he grew up at. That's why he really mad about it. He, he still talk about it. You know? He's not that guy that he pretend to be. He got two faces on. So it is what it is. Mike don't think about that. And the young coach didn't want you in the dream team. So he said that Mike Neal shammed him for not going. He was top five players. But they had somebody who will pick the team. You got to blame them, not Mike. He didn't get a lot of things that he should have got because people found out about him. And when you act like that, sometimes you're going to win a lot of games like that. But when the, when the most important thing, like a dream team, some other events, they don't bite you to it. They know you don't know how to act. So when you're two-faced, a lot of that takes place. <laughs> I mean, I'm still trying to recover from that. And it's got nothing to do with me. I just asked a question. Oak took out the blend, the blowtorch, and told us how MJ took over Zeke's city, got himself a statue in Zeke's hood, and that when you're, quote, you have two faces on, people find out about you. And everybody knows it. He does know how to act, and that's why nobody wanted him around the 92 Dream Team. Not my words, Oaks. But that's the kind of content you're missing if you're not locking in the Jim Rohn Podcast every single week. And last week, Oak was straight fire. He brought a little extra for the original side hustle. But then again, he always tells it like it is. Or at least how he sees it. Sometimes that includes a hot take about the current NBA, which is exactly what's going around on social media this week. Oak dropping the hottest of takes on Giannis, a.k.a. the two-time MVP and finals MVP and reigning champ. He wouldn't have been a force back in the days. Would or would not? He wouldn't have been a force. Why is that? He would have struggled because they would make him two jump shots. And, and you know, he, he wasn't going to be doing no you to the basket like he's doing. You'll step to the basket and just get laid up. No, somebody's going to knock his head off. I mean, I'm glad he's doing what he's doing now, but he definitely wouldn't. Have, he'd been come out of the bench back in the days. <laughs> oh, come on. That was Oak on the No Pump Fakes podcast. He said not only would he have not been a force back in the day, he would have come off the bench back in the day. Now, I really don't want to disagree with Oak. I don't want to about anything for obvious reasons. If Oak has a take, I'm cool with the take. Now, it might not be a take I would throw out there, personally. Like, you'd probably never catch me saying things like that or thinking things like that. But I've got no problem with Oak thinking and saying whatever the hell Oak wants to think and say. Two reasons. I love Oak, and I'm afraid of Oak. 
Now, Isaiah, on the other hand, decided this was a very good opportunity for him to clap back. Now, I don't know if it was my chat with Oak that worked its way back to Zeke or if this had been building for a long, long time. But it seemed like Zeke had been waiting on this. And when he got the opportunity, he jumped all over it while on the mic at NBA TV. All these guys talking about what Giannis couldn't play and all this. Dude, Giannis going around Oakley. Giannis going around all them. He dunking on them. He letting them. He bigger. He faster. He stronger. You can talk all that stuff because you don't play no more. You can talk all that stuff because you got gray hair and you sitting on the sidelines smoking cigars about what you used to do. That dude would dog you every single time y'all stepped on the court. Now, you may hit him hard. Okay, all right. After you hit him hard, you ain't got no game. You ain't got no game. Okay, so if you hit me and I'd be like, okay, that's all you got? <laughs> you ain't got nothing but a hit? I'm getting ready to mess over you. I tell you what, I, I, I kind of like that energy. I kind of like that energy. Yo, Zeke, I, I'm not even saying that some of what you say right there is wrong. I mean, it is Giannis we're talking about. And I, again, I don't want to go against Oak. But Giannis is not coming off the bench. <laughs> yeah, Giannis is going into the Hall of Fame. But that that aside, <laughs> what do I know? I, I defer to Oak on almost every single matter. One, because I love Oak. Two, because I'm afraid of Oak. And Zeke, you probably should be too. I know you'll never love Zeke. him. In fact, I'm pretty sure you hate each other. But I would be afraid of him. Because Oak's made it pretty clear that, that this is not a guy you want to try, no matter who you are. Man, even Charles Barkley won't mess with him. So you better hope that you don't see the oak tree out in public anytime soon because that might not end well. This feels like one of those situations where you have to aim to kill, right? This needed to be a one-punch knockout. Like, if you're going to swing on oak, you had best land, and that man best go down and never, ever wake up. But I'm not sure that's what Zeke did there. Zeke landed. He did land, for sure. And you can call what Zeke did right now. You can say what you want. You can say he's right. You can say he's wrong. You can say that Oak is over there with his awesome gray hair, chilling with his cigar, being all cool, no longer playing the game. I'm going to say that I'm looking at Oak. I think the guy looks incredible. Gray hair, long hair, short hair, smoking a cigar. Dude, he looks like he could go out there and drop 14 and 10 on you right now. And if being an enforcer is a bad look nowadays, somebody who wasn't the leader of the bad boy Pistons needs to make that point. I don't know. I'm just looking out for you, Zeke. I still like you, Zeke. You might not be as good with me as you used to be or as good with this show as you used to be, but I still like you. I mean, I remember when you jumped on this show after coming right from Red Lobster. Zeke, it's always great to have you on The Last Word. Thank you very much for joining us. What's up? My pleasure. I just got back from Red Lobster. Like, like I still appreciate that, Zeke, all these years later. So I'm still cool with you, which is why I'm trying to warn you. Careful of taking a run at the oak tree. He's an oak tree. You can take a chainsaw to that thing and it's not coming down. You don't want to be caught bumping up against that tree. It's an immovable object. That's strong, though. Isaiah finally had heard enough. 
Jorge Masvidal is my guest. Jorge, my man, what's going on? How are you? How you doing, my brother? That introduction gave me goosebumps, man. That was a good one, man. Dude, it was a good one. But then again, you've had a really good career. I got to ask you, it's fight week. We're a couple of days back. You're stepping into the cage with Colby Covington, of all guys, Saturday night. How are you feeling, and how much are you looking forward to this particular fight and putting on a show? I'm definitely looking forward to putting on the show. I'm definitely looking forward to sending Kobe to critical condition some nearby hospital in Las Vegas. Um, I can't wait, man. I love the fight, and it's it, it's something amazing. You get the fight, but when you get to punch somebody in the face that you generally don't like, it's like, man, the stars couldn't align better. You know what, Jorge, you beat me to it because I was going to say to you, and I was going to get to it early and often, but you already said it. I was going to pose the question like this. Has there ever been a guy that you wanted to punch in the face more than you want to punch this particular guy in the face? The only guy that I want to punch in the face more is not alive. His name is Fidel Castro. But um, after that, it's 100% it's this individual. Okay, so for those who do not know, that's a really strong statement. Why? Why is this the guy? Uh, you know, from him ripping off my coach to all the things he said about my kids and, and my religion and every chance he gets, he... He mentions uh, whether it be a significant other of mine of the past or a teammate's um, wife or something. You know, he go he, he attacks women on the constant. I, I still don't understand why he attacks women. Uh, he always says it's because he's trying to build pay-per-views, nothing serious. So I'm guessing he's going to have like a sex change and, and go to the women's side and then start fighting women because that's that's the reason why he would attack Amanda. It's the reason why he would attack Joanna. Like, they're they're not even male competitors they're not in his division why are you attacking women on the constant you know so there's too many things you know his style of marketing i just wouldn't want the younger generations to think oh that's what i got to do to sell pay-per-views and now we got a bunch of 10 years old growing up thinking that's how you sell pay-per-views you got to insult somebody's wife kids religion and all these things to sell a pay-per-view which when you look at the numbers he's the worst selling pay-per-view guy we've had in a long time man and i am on the opposite spectrum i am one of the highest selling pay-per-view stars of the UFC and it just goes to show you don't have to do it you don't have to sell your soul for a piece of silver Jorge Masvidal is joining us Jorge see here work with me on this because I think like when you talk to an audience that knows you and knows the game and knows the business they know a lot of this background but you're talking to a really big audience right now and not everybody really knows where you're coming from or they're coming from so if you kind of keep that in mind as we're telling this story because I'm asking you things that you've been asked before and there are people who know this story but there are people listening right now that don't know any of this at all as an example okay. like you you guys were very close at one point. However, however, there were guys around the game that said, Jorge, be careful, be careful. Tyrone Woodley warned you about Covington. John Jones warned you about him. People warned you about this guy. Amongst, it, right. amongst others. Amongst others. So, so is there any part of you that regrets? coaches from his hometown, um, individuals from the wrestling circle a lot warned me of him. You know, and um, there's always, as you said, John Jones, Woodley gave me the warnings, right? But there's always three sides of the story, your side, their side and the truth, you know. So um, I was getting to know Kobe, and uh, he broke his hand, and his ex-girlfriend kicked him out of his house, so he didn't have nowhere to live at. I was living nearby the gym. I had an extra room. I said, man, yeah, you come stay with me. You know, six months into it, he breaks his hand again, so he's never able to give me a penny to help me out, and he's eating off my plate, you know, because I'm the one that's getting meal sponsorships and things like that. Um, I already have, like, 25 fights as a pro, so I'm doing all right in life. You know, he's trying to figure it out. He's, he doesn't know what to do. 
Um, I let him stay with me close to nine months. Then after that, you know, I I, uh, I go back down to Miami. I introduce him to my coach, which coaches him from his first amateur fight all the way up to him winning that uh, Mickey Mouse belt he parades around town, the interim belt that he won against RDA. And uh, me and Paulino were in his corner. Paulino's my head coach that I introduced him to. They had a handshake that it'd be 5% on whatever he makes on the fight, you know, same current deal that I have with him that I've had with him since a kid and um, no paperwork needed. It's just two men shaking hands and we know we're, we're going to follow through on it. So Kobe wins the belt. He finally makes a little bit of money in his career. And guess what he does after winning that belt? How much he pays my coach? Zero dollars. From then, right then, that moment, um, it was never the same. I, I already knew that this person was not a trustworthy person. I'd stopped hanging out with him. It was a, uh, it was a clear evidence sign to me. You know, it was about four months in, and he kept like ducking and diving the question. And then he would say, "Oh no, it's just miscommunication. Your know, coach doesn't speak that well English. I don't speak Spanish." Yada yada yada. So I try to like get in, in in between and try to figure it out. And this guy would avoid that. So after four months, we knew he wasn't going to pay already, and I and I already had already cut this person out of my life. You know, like I I, I knew not to trust this guy. Yet he was still on every news media outlet, and you could see everything I'm saying. You could fact check it online. He was still saying, Jorge Masvidal's my best friend. If it wasn't for Jorge Masvidal, I wouldn't be here. Jorge Masvidal's my best friend. Um, I never said that. You can't catch me on air, like, saying anything crap like that, you know. So I'm just, uh, my problems with him, I'm going to keep it, you know, closed doors. I, I know I want to fight him. I, I wanted to hit him with a baseball bat to the neck, but my coach begged me not to. He's like, man, you're going to get a chance to fight him. The world will see, and you'll get my money back in that in that event. So uh, here we are just a couple of days away from that, you know. But as soon as uh, Kobe got a chance to, to use all that information that he gained within living for me or, or, or fabricated, he did. He took it public and just goes on rants about my kids, goes on rants about my religion, my lifestyle, everything everything that a man shouldn't do to another man, especially if I helped you out, man. I gave you a place to live. I gave you food to eat. I'm the one that told you to stick with the sport, man. The sport pays off. It's rough in the beginning or in the middle or at the end, but you can push through it. And uh, and this is what he does for a couple pieces of silver. So it shows the true colors, you know. I never would have gone public with any of this information had he not, you know, hey, you want to fight, let's fight. You sign a contract. I would have broke his jaw, got my coach's money, and, and so on and so on, you know. But thank goodness God's been good to me, so I don't even need this money. I've been able to pay my coach for, for that tab that he owed him. So uh, it's just, you know, the guy's uh, a charlatan, and I can't wait to expose him come March 5th, you know. He says a lot of the same things that I say about him, he says about me, but yet nobody in this sport is talking bad about me like that. There's nobody in the sport that I owe money to. There's nobody in the sport that that's going around saying I'm a two-faced piece of crap but him, the one that everybody, it's not just me. If it was just me and him having this bickering thing, whatever, right? But there's numerous athletes in the combat world that will tell you the same thing. Ask Woodley how he feels about um, Kobe even after the fights and all that. Ask John Jones. Ask numerous wrestling coaches and wrestlers from the wrestling community before Kobe came over to MMA, what they think about this individual, you know? So, I mean, I'm not here uh, trying to win a political race either. All I know is I'm going to break this guy's face in a devastating way. And, you know, maybe maybe Las Vegas, Nevada, police department is going to press some charges on me because I'm going to hurt this dude, man. Uh my man, I, I just got chills for about five minutes straight. Jorge Masvidal, and it's not like I didn't know that story. That 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 is one of the most remarkable responses that you and I 
have ever been a part of it because that's real. I know that's real, and I know that's personal. I know that's deep. Jorge, you, I mean, your life is amazing. Your journey has been amazing, where you started, where you are right now, the Masvidal brand, all of this. In your experience, can you fight when you're running on that kind of fuel and it's that personal? Is that a good thing, or is there any danger in maybe fighting angry? How do you approach that? Oh, great question, Jim, man. Um, since I started the sport at a young age of 18, I, I knew I wouldn't take anything that happened in the sport personal either. You know, as much, with everything that I said there, it's it's still not on a personal level. It's about as close as I could get to being personal, but it's still not on a personal level. I uh, I keep my emotions in check for every single fight. I didn't like Ben Askren one inch going into that fight, not one inch. You know, and, and there's a lot of guys that I don't like. I don't like Usman either, not one inch going into those fights, you know. There's, there's nothing that I could do more than be a professional and keep my emotion in check. And then after I decapitate the individual, then it's different. You know, celebration, I could let a little bit of my emotions come out and this and that, but there, there's none of that. I'm fighting that, you know, and I've known that since I'm 18 because I, I remember being young and, and going into sparring mad or, or happy or sad or hungry and, and the outcomes that it would have. So since I've been in this game and it's going to be 20 years in just a couple months, I've always known you've got to keep your emotions in check. This this is a chess mixed with checkers, mixed with a marathon, mixed with a sprint, mixed with the heaviest weightlifting session you've ever had in your life, mixed with somebody trying to come take your head off when you get tired. So the only thing you can do that you could have control of is you keeping your emotions in check, you know? So that, that's definitely something that no matter what, I have to keep in check. You know, I can't say the same about this other guy. I'm already so deep in his head, man. So it's gonna be fun, man, just to play it out. Dude, what do you think about that? I mean, do you think do you think that he's afraid of you? Do you think the guy's actually a coward? I I know for a fact he's actually a coward. You know, the the way that he speaks about women, I know you're an actual coward. You know, the way that uh the way that the, his closest people to him, I, I, numerous times in his life, the way he treats him and stabs him in the back, um. He he would you could see how many interviews he did about American Top Team, how much he loved them. Then um, he goes on to say, "Look at the worst advice they gave me. They were just telling me to breathe." Well, the camp that he's at right now, at his last fight that he had, they were doing the same exact thing. They were just telling him breathe, breathe. So it, every chance he gets to stab somebody, they got a little too close to him. He doesn't. He doesn't stab people in the back that he doesn't know because he doesn't have that chance. But everybody that's gotten close to him, that's, that's gave him a hand wrestling coaches that let him stay at his place and then he ends up like hitting on their girlfriends hitting on their kids um stealing actual money from them actually stole clothes from john jones they're not even the same size of clothes but john jones he emptied out john jones's wardrobe when he left because they used to be college roommates and they had the following out he took his clothes and took off what what what's wrong with you man but yet he'll never confront john jones He'll never, he'll never see John Jones eye to eye. He hears that John Jones is in the state, he flees. He goes to, he used to freaking a lot of spots to eat at back in the day. And when we were having the turbulence, um, when it first started that he was um, going public about it, I just started going to these places to see if I could just, you know, have a heart to heart with him face to face. Guess what? He stopped going to those places once he found out I was looking for him, you know? So I definitely believe he's a coward. He's got a decent gas tank and he's a, he's not a bad athlete, you know? So he relies on that a lot. But he could be the hammer always in a fight, and and that he has no problem playing. Whenever he has to be the nail, that's when the coward in him comes out, and it comes out in a fast pace, man. It's just like a snowball. It's like things ain't going his way in the cage. You see him quickly start to crumble. He doesn't know how to push through adversity in a cage. He knows how to be the hammer, though, but that's about it.
Jorge Masvidal is joining us. This is some kind of fight coming up this weekend. So really quickly, we haven't really talked about the fight because this story is just so insane and compelling. Do you expect him, Jorge, to try to take you down for the majority of the fight? Do you think that will be his strategy? I think he's going to come out throwing big bombs. Um, he thinks his stand-up is improving, and he's going to go to the wrestling, and then he's going to come trying to throw big bombs. He knows at the end of the day he can't hold that pace against me, the, guy, the pace he holds against other guys. When I used to train with him a lot was when I was at 155 pounds. Um, as I got more mature, my body went up in weight, and I became a 170-pounder. Our training sessions were very limited. Like I said, he's always like being the hammer, never the nail. So once I started to get make it a little bit more competitive in, in departments like wrestling, when I was at 170, um, he didn't like that as much. You know, when we were sparring, I was a bigger guy. He wouldn't like that at all. So we have maybe like one session at 170 pounds, and that was to help him out and get ready for a fight. After that, he would tell I would show up because one coach would tell me, yeah, he's gonna work out with you today. I'd show up there. Then, like, either Mike Brown or, or, or the other coach would be like, no, 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 he's, he doesn't want to actually work out with you today. He's going to work out with these two guys. So I'd sit on the sidelines, coach him, help him. Like, hey, yeah, man, do this, do that. And then in the back of my head, kind of like, I wonder why he didn't want to work out with me. I wonder why. I wonder why. Because when I was at 155 and the weight difference was massive, he'd want to work out all the time. As I closed that weight gap and that weight room strength, mm, but he started to, like, slowly fade, man. So... I know at the end of the day, I'm a dog, man. Whether I'm, I'm technically sound or I'm the fastest or strongest or, or any of this, I don't care about any of that. I know at the end of the day, all my will is going to finish the next guy in front of me, no matter how tired or hurt I am. And he's known that since he's ever met me. So he has that in the back of his mind. And he's starting to show how he's getting nervous in interviews, how he has herpes from, from wrestling, not herpes. And every time he has a little bit too much stress, he starts to break out. As I've seen on some of the videos already, he's got the mad herpes. That means he's full under stress. I wonder why he's so stressed out. Dude. <laughs> uh yeah, another brilliant piece of analysis. I usually don't handicap fights that way, but that's something to look at. Hey, listen, Jorge, the amazing thing is what you just said. You are one of the rare dudes who gets better the higher the weight. That's really unusual. That's very rare. How do you explain that? Um, at 155, there came a point where I was a great competitor there, and, and I was just right. But as my weight grew, I couldn't make that weight class no more than uh, USADA came in and they outlawed IVs. So the last four years of my career at 155 pounds, um, shortly after making weight, I would have to do about three to four IV bags just to recuperate everything, all the water that I had lost. I was walking around at about 184 pounds, so wow. 182, very similar to what I walk at now to make 170. So as I went up on weight, I said a couple of things. I'll never cut this drastic amount of weight again ever in my career. And, um, and I just have as much gas tank and energy as I could. It, it, the last three, four years of of, of 155, um, it wasn't the same guy that was in the gym that was in the fight. You know, I didn't have that same electricity, that same pop, so I, I knew I had to go up and wait. And when I did, thank God, you know, I, I, I did. The, there was uh, one or two coaches that are no longer in, in, in the corner that were advising against it firmly. They're like, man, you're going to get smoked at 170. You're just a small guy. You're not going to be able to handle that power and that strength. Thank God I didn't listen to these individuals, you know, and, and, and I did what, uh, what was in my heart. Jorge, one last thing. You, because we talked about the journey, you're headlining another UFC fight. This time you're doing it without a title on the line. What does that say about the Jorge Masvidal brand and how strong it is? 
it says a lot of things, and I hope especially to to my employers because they like to play a lot of games with me. Um, that I can sell, man. Uh, like I said earlier, and this is just numbers. Anybody can go and research it. Kobe's the worst selling pay per view that we have at welterweight when it comes to title fights. He, he, between him and Usman, um, it, he the, he doesn't draw whatsoever in any of his cards. So we know it's not him. We know it's completely me. That's the A side. So it says even more. If if you look at the card as well. From top to bottom, there's not a lot of big names on it. Actually, there is no big names on it. There's, there's not too many big names that they put on the card. They put literally the whole card on my shoulders, on my back, and I don't mind it, man. I actually enjoy that. It lets the UFC know and the world know I have drawing power. And the drawing power, let me tell you, it's not because I'm so good-looking or the salads that I eat and I post online. No, nothing to do with that. It's because everybody knows I'm going to give it my all, win or lose when I get in there and that cage shuts. All my emphasis, all my being, every cell in my body is just focused on one thing, ending the individual in front of me. And that's the entertainment that people crave in the sport. You know, people don't want to hear me talking about people's wives and things like that. No, people want to see me get out there and give everything I got to finish the individual in front of me. And I think that that's gone a long way for me. I don't know, my brother. I don't think, you correct me if I'm wrong because you know the business better than me. I bet Matt VD also does not sell pay-per-views. Matt Herpes. Matt Venereal Disease. Anyway, my man, I'll tell you what. We, you just sold a number of pay-per-views. This is why you need to come into the mainstream and have a conversation like that because there are people who didn't know any of this that now know all of this, and I guarantee they're going to want to see how this plays out. It's UFC 272. It's Covington v. Masvidal. It is Saturday. It is live. It's in Vegas. It is pay-per-view, and it's on ESPN+. And I've got no problem saying that is one you have to see and one you have to get. Jorge? I got nothing but respect and appreciation for you. That's a long conversation you just had with us, and I really appreciate you for doing that, man. Thank you so much. Good luck, my brother. You're your platform to me, man. Always. Thank you, my brother. God bless everybody here. And one huge thanks while I got this huge platform of something I I vowed to God a long time ago. Thank God Almighty. Thank Jesus Christ. uh, Growing up, I didn't have a lot. I, I gave myself, and I asked for a lot of guidance and help, and here I am, man. I'm I'm doing all right now. Amen. Jorge, my man, good luck. Talk to you again soon. God bless my brother. You too. Thank you always, man. Good night.